Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Monday, July 12th, 2021, and that means that it's Movie Monday, and we'll be discussing American Factory, a 2019 documentary produced by Netflix that was quite eye-opening. How are you this morning, Michael? I'm doing fine. It's going to be a nice warm day here in Colorado. And uh, the American Factory was in Dayton, Ohio. I think we have warmth all over the country. Uh, but we'll see about uh, the combination of uh, American workers and, and Chinese workers. And I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. It was a really good documentary. Yes. I, think it was, I think it was well done and it was very eye-opening. So I think that I kind of want to split this up into three parts, if that's okay with you. Because when the movie ended yesterday, you said, what is this movie about? And I said, well, and I I sort of just thought, like, why did they make this movie? I think that was the question you asked. Why did they make this movie? And I thought that there was sort of an implicit pro-union message and a lamentation that unions were being downgraded or discounted in the modern era. And I thought that might be the message. And you said, I don't think that was the message at all. I think the message was that this was a clash, a fundamental clash of cultures. So the Chinese culture didn't really fit in Dayton, Ohio. Um, And that's what the movie was sort of exposing. And I think that is very true as well. And I think the third thing is exposing is industry is moving towards automation. And that's going to cost manufacturing jobs. That's sort of how, how it ended. And... So the, it ended with a walk through the factory. I'm like, oh, yeah, four people used to work on that unit. We're going to get a big mechanical arm. It'll replace all four of them. So I think maybe we should do with, I think that you were right. The main thrust of the movie is the clash of cultures between American and Chinese business culture and American and Chinese manufacturing culture. So we should start with that. Then we should move into the union segment. And then we should close with the automation segment. Does that sound okay? Actually, that sounds great because what I did was what I think... I fell in the trap of what most people do. What is the one thing this movie is about? Mm -hmm. What's the good side and what's the bad side? There is no bifurcation here. Uh, There's many sides and it's reality. It was a documentary. I think it was a true documentary documenting this is what happened. And you can look at it from different viewpoints Mm -hmm. and you can see multiple things going on and that's life. Yeah. Life is not just just one, just right and left, or up and down, or one or two. Uh, it's it's a whole spectrum of things that could happen. And I like those three. Those are three good, uh, large perspectives, and there's probably a lot more, or sub-perspectives. But yeah, that's a really good place to start, David. I like your organization. Okay. Now, I want to just make a few comments about the documentary itself before we start. I thought it was extremely well done. And I thought that it was awesome that it was a documentary without any talking head shots. So all of it was documented. The action on the ground was how they built the narrative. They didn't pull someone into a room like you or I with the lights on your face and say, well, it was really bad when they did this to me. Um, I mean, they did have a few interview segments like the forklift lady that got laid off for trying to unionize. But they interviewed her when she was out on the picket line. And she's saying, yeah, maybe I pushed too hard. And then she's like, go for the union, you know, as someone drives by. So (laughs) it wasn't like an organized, sit-down, lit, well-miked talking head shot. Or the guy that got hurt. He said, you know, I worked at GM for 20 years, never had a workplace injury. Worked at Fuyao for six months, and my leg got all jacked up. Well, he was at his house, walk-putzing around. It was like 
everything that happened happened as part of the action. It didn't happen where it's like, oh, this happened, now let's pull people aside and have them sit in front of a camera and talk about it. And I thought that was awesome. And I think one way that they tied that together extraordinarily well was with sound design and with score. So the music in the movie really tied everything together. And then they used sort of factory sounds as like a sound design that sort of brought the narrative of what they were trying to express together. So I thought the uh, from a filmmaking perspective, it was an extraordinarily well-done documentary. I think the other thing I, I liked a lot was it wasn't just one-sided. Uh, they went to China mm-hmm. and they, they viewed the Chinese and how they lived. And they had the actual microphones and they had audio and sometimes audio and video for the Chinese talking to Chinese about Americans. Mm-hmm. That was so it was a it was a true documentary documenting what happened, not just one side, uh, different sides. That was extraordinary. The things that they said and Laura, of course, we were watching it with Laura, my sister, your daughter. And she said, I can't believe they let him film this. When it's like, <laughs> Americans are stubborn and they're stupid. But just remember the old Chinese proverb, pet the donkey's hair in the way that it wants to go. Like, because we're better than them. So we have to teach them. how. And it's like, I can't believe they, they allowed film crews in there. Like, they felt comfortable saying that in front of the film crews. Yep. Yeah, I, I thought that was, that was interesting. I thought that was good because you say, oh, why should they call us that? Well, that's what they think. Mm-hmm. And then instead of instead of getting upset about why do they think that, I mean, why would they say that? I think we as Americans should listen, try to understand why do they think that way? Mm-hmm. I think if you saw how they lived, if you saw their interaction with their boss, if you saw how their factories worked, if you saw their culture, then if you lived there your whole life and grew up with that and that's all you knew, you may say the same thing. Yeah. So they did go to China, like you said, and it seemed, some of it seemed bonkers to me. Some of the corporate culture. And I, I may be sounding like those Chinese executives talking to their workers, saying the Americans are dumb. They were singing hymns. They, they, what amounted to hymns, worship hymns about the company. And... I feel like if you tried to make people in Dayton, Ohio, sing worship hymns about Fu Yao Glass Company, they'd say, like, no, this is what we do on Sundays. We worship our God. We don't worship our company. Because um, would you not agree when they when they showed China and they showed the people singing the, uh, singing the praises of Fu Yao Glass Corporation, it was a lot like a hymn? Yes, absolutely. And I think that was the that was what was being communicated. And also that they did uh, see their company and their leader uh, in a much different way than Americans do. Mm-hmm. I think right after that, shortly after that, they cut to the Americans uh, complaining about work workplace conditions. Yeah. Is <laughs> I'm going to complain. I'm going to file a report. I'm going to. So I'm going to do. I'm going to. Oh, I, I, I. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it was a documentary, but the way they placed it was really contrasting the difference. I mean, to me, the differences between the cultures. Yes. You do not. And one of them said, you know, you can even complain about the president. And they won't do anything to you here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, they would never do that in China. Well, they would, but 
they're going to do something to them. You yeah. Know? Anyway, the point is, uh, when you gr- grow up a certain way, you tend to think that way. And other people in other countries don't grow up the same way you do, and they're going to think differently. Mm-hmm. And I think there's where most of the clash was. But you're right. Those three things did happen in this documentary, and probably more if we think deeper. But those are three good points. Yeah. Um, so talking about the cultural clash, I thought what was very interesting was by sort of staying on the ground, boots on the ground, you saw people that were advocates for Fu Yao become detractors to Fu Yao, especially the initial Fu Yao Glass America American executives. Do you remember, you know, they had the vice president and the president, there were these white guys, and I think they were there to sort of tell people, these are good jobs, these are good paying jobs, but don't you dare unionize. And when the American workers didn't come up to speed fast enough, the Chinese management and the Chinese C-level suite said, maybe it's because these American executives don't understand how we want business to be done. And they fired them. And they brought in Chinese-American executives. Um, and the guy said, you know, I spent 27 years in China and 28 years in America, and now I'm your executive. Um, there was a culture clash there. There was a culture clash between the C-suite of, uh, you know, the mothership company in Fujian and the president and vice president of Fuyao Glass America. And they said, I don't think that these white guys know how we want to do business. They are op- they're the problem. And I think that management always thinks the workers are the problem. But it was fascinating to see the chairman, Chairman Cao, say, I think it's management, upper management, at the country level. If we get rid of them, we'll be okay. The workers are fine. It's, it's them. They're, they're too sympathetic to the workers' needs. Uh, I, I found it all very fascinating. Well, I think that last part, too sympathetic to the workers' needs. I think Americans sees workers very different than the Chinese see workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the workers see their company very different in America and China. Yeah. And so when you have America and Chinese workers, and they had Chinese workers right next to the American workers. To train them, yeah. And, they, and then they train. And then you had your your... American C-suite level uh, management. Uh, and then you had the Chinese observing, uh, you know, the billionaire uh, who financed it. They're looking at us as, wait a minute, you're not dealing with your employees like we do in China. You're not dealing with them the same way we do. I'm not going to say good or bad. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's different. And we are all about productivity and we don't like your path to productivity. We want to change that. Yeah. And they did. And they fired them and brought in uh, Chinese uh, C-suite people. Mm-hmm. I, to me, that was the issue uh, as far as the culture. Like, that's not how we run things. Yeah. And this is, well, America is pretty successful. We're pretty successful, too, here by running, the, running things the way we've run them. Yes, but that's not how we do it in China. And so we want to go faster than what you do. Also, there's a reason why. Uh, so many of your factories have shut down and moved to China. Mm-hmm. And that reason is not because you didn't know how to do things. It's because you demanded too much. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's that's what Chairman Cao's argument would be. This unionization, this make things super safe at the expense of productivity, that's the reason why the factories moved to China in the first place. 
you know, the, the give these people all these vacation days. They were appalled that these people took two days off a week. They said, you know, and they only work eight-hour shifts. They say, in China, we work 12-hour shifts. We work six days a week minimum. We work most Sundays. And these Americans are complaining. They come in five days a week for eight hours. They're complaining. It's like, what's the deal here? And the thing is, if that's all you know, you'll say, yeah, the Americans are a bunch of crybabies. We yeah. work way harder than they do. And they work, they move to the company and live there, and they don't see their families. I, like a couple of them says, Yo, oh, I, I visit my family twice a year. Mm -hmm. Their company is their family. Mm -hmm. and, and, and our sense, and our definition. The people, where you spend your evenings and where you spend your weekends and where you spend your relaxing time, that's your family. But they didn't do that. Yeah. That's not how they live. Their family was their company. And I thought one of the most interesting scenes was Chairman Cow at the end, sort of reflecting on whether or not what he's done with his life was any good. You know, he's built so many factories, but what, what's it all for? He had this moment of self-reflection. He's like, you know, have I made anyone's lives better or have I made them worse with what I've done? You know, when I was a boy, China was undeveloped and unproductive. But I still remember, you know, playing in the field and smelling the flowers. Now there's buildings and factories everywhere, and I'm part of that. Like, has my life been worth anything? And then he says, to sort of justify his existence after his sort of moment of soul searching, he says, but the purpose of life is to work. That's what I believe. And that's sort of like how he justifies everything he's done. And I feel like that is, maybe I don't know, maybe I'm extrapolating one guy's words to a country. But that's more of a Chinese sentiment than an American sentiment. Do you feel like the American sentiment would be the purpose of life is to work? You know, spending time with my family, having hobbies, having passions outside of the productivity of the company that employs me? Nah. You know, the purpose of life is to work. I don't feel like that's very really an American ideal. I think Americans would say we work to live. We don't live to work. Yes. And so that's part of the fundamental culture clash that you're talking about, that the movie exposes. And I think when we disagreed, I mean, we didn't really disagree. I just said, I think this movie, the point of this movie is to show unionization on the decline. That was a point of the movie. I do feel like the main narrative thrust is the culture clash, like you said. I think that was like the initial, that, that was the initial conflict. Mm -hmm. And from that initial conflict, other things began to unfold and i think i think you're right i think the labor uh issues begin to unfold uh and then autom uh, automation began to unfold and so it, it just kept unfolding yeah and there was i mean so the movie was pretty depressing all in all but there were some interesting moments like the relationship between rob and wong the furnace supervisor and the furnace engineer oh uh, yeah, that was interesting. So, I mean, we can talk about that. They became friends, and Rob said, he's my Chinese brother. Like, we're brothers. I mean, we may be from across the globe, but we're brothers. And Rob was this older guy that they brought him on as a furnace supervisor. And it was cool when he was like, yeah, I had Wong and some of my other his other friends come 
for Thanksgiving. I thought it was going to be like three or four of them, but there ended up being thirteen. Well, they can't shoot. They can't shoot guns in China. So I took them out and they shot all my guns. And some of the brave ones hopped on the back of my Harley and we rode them up and down the street. And they keep talking about it, so that makes me happy. I thought that was a very cool scene. Yeah, because they were. He he says he's my brother. I'll always have his back. Mm-hmm. And so they they were like this. They were from two different cultures, very much though, but they were. They liked each other. They they were good. Mm-hmm. It, it, that was that was very. Again, it was a documentary because that did happen. Yeah, that wasn't made up. And so, yeah, you have good things and you have bad things. Uh, that's life. It's a it's just a combination of everything. And I mean, the sad part was Rob got laid off for being too slow on the computer. Fired, I guess, not laid off. Um, but the the happy part was Wong was saying, "I've only cried once." He started working at the Fuya when he turned 18. I've only cried once since I've been an adult, but when I got here, I cried because I missed my family. And in the final scene, because you could tell that Wong was a very, very good worker, um, very good at his job. That's why Rob respected him. And he was also like kind of a compassionate person. That's another reason why Rob... But at the end, you see Wong in Dayton, Ohio with his family. So they brought his family out. So that was kind of a happy ending for Wong. Sad ending for Rob, but hey, it is what it is, right? That's life. That's business. Yep. Well, they uh, then they moved on to the uh, the labor issues because the way. Well, from from what I understand, I'm not going to say the way it happens. The way I understand is when there's conflict, the Chinese just work harder. Mm-hmm. When there's conflict or or, or unsafe conditions. Uh, in America, and this is the way America has grown, is that that we unionize. And you don't unionize in China. And so there, there's where you start having conflicts. Again, the culture in China, uh, you don't you don't unionize your workers because your your company is what you uh, what you work for. Yeah. Well, they do have a union in in China. Though. Well, Remember. They, they do, yeah. It's they, tied they to the Communist Party, and it's run by the chairman's brother-in-law, and everyone's part of the union. <laughs> that's right. So their version of you, and that's what's fascinating to me, is as a student of political science, it's been a long time since I've studied political science, but Karl Marx led into the philosophy of Lenin, led into the philosophy of Mao Zedong, and it's this philosophy that you know, the bourgeoisie and and uh, the people that control the means of production will be overthrown by the workers. The workers will have a stake in what happens. And sort of by a company coming in and say, we explicitly don't want unionization, you know, that's anti-communist. <laughs> you were saying that during the movies. Like, Wait it, a minute, that doesn't fit. No, it doesn't fit. Like that a Chinese organization would fight so hard against workers' rights. It's like, that's the whole point of communism is workers' rights. It's it's so crazy to me that a, a nominally, I guess nominally communist government over a company, like that company's culture would not be communist at all. Mm-hmm. Because I think that when you're trying when you're focused on the bottom line, like because the Chinese Communist Party, which was the head of the union in Fujian. Um, or, you know, they were they were allied. You know, they visited the union office in Fujian, and it was the party office and the union office for that Fu, Fu, for Fuyao company. So they were bedfellows. 
It's like everyone's part of a union and everyone's happy. And like unions work great in China because everyone knows the union is not there to address your grievances. The union's not there to get you fewer hours. You know, the union is there um, basically for you to pay taxes, probably. That's what it seemed like to me. <laughs> well, there again, uh, everything is focused on productivity. Everything's focused on productivity. Mm -hmm. Now, unions in the United States is worker safety, worker pay, uh, worker salaries. Uh, and I think in China, it's all about productivity. Mm -hmm. What can we do to make you more productive? Uh, not safe <laughs> or making more money, or but just more productive. You have enough to live, fine, be more productive. Mm -hmm. That's the impression I got. That, uh, And I've heard that before also from... Uh, my Asian students, that it's all about productivity, being product productive. Mm -hmm. It's 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 not about safety. It's not about pay. It's not about equality or equity. It's about productivity. Well, if you think about it, that's you can grow that way, mm -hmm. short term, but then at what risk? Well, the other thing, as far as labor is concerned, I kept thinking of the contrast between China and how many. A pool of workers they have to pull from mm -hmm. and the United States and what pool of workers does, do the United States have to pull from from their from their uh, uh, communities yeah I think it's two different types of countries that you can pull workers in and I, I made this point last night but I'll reiterate it today I think that it's easy to scapegoat Fu Yao as that's what Chinese would do in a position. Um, a Chinese company would sort of ignore worker safety. A Chinese company would pay low wages. A Chinese com But I think a capitalist con country, I mean, a company would do that. Because if you look at Amazon, they're driving down wages, demanding more out of their workers, demanding them work longer hours, firing them by robot, making them pee in a bottle, and there's been reports, Amazon's worried, their projections show, that they won't be able to automate away their jobs in time by the fact that everyone realizes that working for Amazon sucks. Uh, they might run out of American labor before they're fully automated. And that there have been news reports, I, I should have pulled them up, but so it's like, I think it's easy to say, yeah, the Chinese would do that. They would make people work long hours in dangerous conditions. It's like, no, any profit-driven company, for the most part, that's working on a scale like that of Fuyao or Amazon's working on an even larger scale than Fuyao, you're going to have labor issues. And Amazon's been a huge opponent of unionization as well because that's bad for their bottom line. But if it's bad for their bottom line, who is it good for? It's good for the workers, right? In theory. Well, in that in that instance. But that's a very good point. It's a very good point. Uh, it's so easy to blame someone else. But mm -hmm. hey, we have the same issues here. This is not a Chinese and, problem. It's a it's a capitalism problem or a, a capitalist. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, it's 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 looking at the bottom line. Like, what is your bottom line? If it's if it's productivity, if it's revenue, if it's well, then you're going to have these kinds of uh, uh, decisions. And I think uh, recently, of course, uh, we've had more than one bottom line. We've had triple bottom lines. 
uh, where we not only just look at the profit, but we look at the environment and we also look at the people and the labor and try to try to equalize it out for long term sustainability. Uh, so but but that's not exactly that's not what this was about. No, not at all. This is about economic economic sustainability. Actually, not really sustainability. Sustainability was not part of the, the, the dialogue as far as I could see. No, not at all. It was about it was about it was about growth. It's about growth. And mm -hmm. they never when you start growing, they never thought about once it's growing, how's it gonna keep growing? What's it gonna be after it's grown? And so that wasn't part of the formula or part of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I think we can move on now to the unionization debate, just bringing in Amazon and showing that this is not a Chinese problem. This is a capitalism problem. And yet, I think that the good thing about this movie, American Factory, is what you said was the thrust of the movie, the clash of cultures, sort of shows the differences between management and workers in starker relief. Because not only is there a management versus labor debate, but that becomes also cultural at the same time. So you can see the differences between them more starkly. Since management is all Chinese and labor is all American, um, the, the clash between management and labor is easier to see. Um, I think, magnified. yeah, it's, totally ma magnified. it's magnified. So it's, it's an age old debate. I think that if you went into an Amazon shop and you tried to sort of suss out who's pro-union, who's anti-union, um, it would be a little bit more confusing because Amazon has spies. They have spies go to the union meetings. I think there's, I don't want to speak out of turn, allegedly, because I don't want to say anything <laughs> illegal, but I think that Amazon has the most sophisticated union busting, allegedly, the most sophisticated union busting organization um, in the history of man. Say it's it's just say it's very possible. It's possible. It is quite possible <laughs> that they're using not only technology but human resources to make sure that unions don't form at their warehouses. And I don't want to pick on Amazon, but they're an easy one to pick on. Um, yeah, they're very visible. Yes. The other thing, David, is that I think both a Chinese company about the, this labor issues, American company about these labor issues, when they have similar objectives that they're trying to meet. They're going to try to do the same thing or, or have essentially the same type of outcome. But their procedure, the way they do that is going to be very different because of the cultures again. Mm -hmm. Because the way a Chinese management deals with the Chinese worker from their society and culture, uh, that's going to something's going to be more acceptable than others. Uh, there's not going to be acceptable in the United States for an American Mm -hmm. And vice versa. Yeah. You know, they would not understand that in China. What? You know? And so therefore, when you have uh, the, the worker and the administration and the C-level are dealing with labor different ways, they're trying to achieve the same thing, but they're dealing with the different ways, you're going to have conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think, so, I think that's partly why we saw what we saw. Yeah. Now... Uh, I think that what was interesting was the consultant, the anti-union consultants that the Fuya brought in, and said that they paid him over a million dollars to get 888 votes because there was, I think, about 1,200 votes, maybe 1,300 total votes, 888 for, 444 against, or something like that. 
So something like that. So that was against eight hundred eighty-eight <clears throat> against the union, four hundred forty-four four, and they paid this company a million dollars to run these seminars where the workers had to go, and they said, if you unionize, you're going to lose your job. Like, you can strike all you want, but they'll just get someone to replace you. That's what the guy was saying, and they brought in, they had leaked audio because someone brought in a tape recorder to these. Um, but I was pointing out, you know, they, they gave this company a million dollars to get 888 votes. It's like, you could have given the workers each $1,000 and said, vote no. And you would have had $120,000 left over. Like, um, that's basically what happened, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and the pro-union people, they seem to be the older ones that had worked at other factories who that had been UAW workers. They said, you know, I worked at the Dayton plant before it got shuttered. I was a UAW worker. I was making 30 an hour. Now I'm making 12. And the union was good to me for 20, 30 years. I, the union was a good thing. But these young people, they don't see, they've never grown up with the union. They've never had protect labor protection. So if the company is saying, no, it's bad. If you get into the union, you're going to lose your job. They say, well, then I'll vote no. Or, you know, your union dues, your wage right now is $12 an hour. And you're going to have to pay $1.50 of that to the union. And you're not going to get any benefits from them. It's like, well, I'll believe you because I've never had a union, but I have had a job. It's fascinating. And that's what Chairman mm-hmm. Cow was saying. We want the young people. We want the young people. That's the culture we want. Well, they want people that have never really realized that a union is your advocate. And that's why the unions continue to lose their power. But at the end of the day, it was a vote. It was a vote among the employees, and they voted against it. So I found that part super fascinating because we see that play out in Amazon. We see that play out in a lot of companies that are fighting against unionization and winning when it seems like a union would be a good idea for those workers. It just it, it shocks me. Well, I think, I think what you said is a very good perspective. Uh, the younger people don't understand. And that's why, <clears throat> you know, you really should listen to everybody. Uh, listen to the young people. They have innovative ideas, but listen to older people, too, because they've had experience on what can happen and what will happen. Because a lot of times the younger people do not do not understand the potential of human behavior, uh, of, of humans, that, that what they will naturally say and do, uh, because human nature, they will say one thing and do another. Older people have seen that. Many times mm-hmm. they say, I've seen this before. The younger people have not seen that before. And so, yeah, it's good to have young people with innovative ideas. But the young people need to listen to the older people and says, well, here's what has happened when the same similar things have happened. Mm-hmm. And so what what the potential uh, downside. Uh, so. Younger people will see the upside of their decisions. The older people can see the upside, but they're also very aware of the downside of a decision, too. Mm -hmm. Like the extra $2 an hour that they get to entice you to vote against the union, there's no guarantee that that's going to stay forever. Correct. There's no guarantee that you're going to have a bad quarter and that $2 an hour goes away. Now, with a union, there would be a contract and there would be a guarantee. And I think that the older people can see that. The younger people can't. They said, I'm getting $2 more an hour if I vote against the union. It's like there's no guarantees in this world. And I thought that the reason why I thought that it was about unions a lot is because that was a central narrative throughout the whole movie. And you had the U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, 
go to the big opening October 6th. And he mentioned it. And then he said, um, they had the vice president guy for, what was his name? I don't know, the, the vice president of Fuyao America, the white guy, uh, Dave Burroughs. Okay, here they are. Here's Dave Burroughs. Self, vice president of Fuyao America, and then Sherrod Brown, self, U.S. Senator. Well, Sherrod Brown gets up at the big ribbon cutting and he says, yeah, well, I hope that these workers find the strength to unionize so that they can work together, you know, and we can bring good union jobs back. And this Dave Burroughs guy is like, I wish I could take those things to cut the ribbon and chop off Sherrod Brown's head for saying that. And all of the Chinese, you know, upper management were saying, what's what's the deal with this union stuff? There's not supposed to be any union talk. And Dave Burroughs said, well, he went off, he went off script. And I think it was telling that when they fired all the American management and they just had Chinese management, Dave Burroughs was saying, you can't spell Fuyao without F-U. And he's, and it's like now he's angry at them, but he was drinking the Kool-Aid while he was on board, you know? So I think that we always say where you stand depends on where you sit. But I think another good example, and this doesn't really have as much of a ring, is what you say depends on who signs your paychecks. I think that's another. That's right. That who pays your check. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Because people will make decisions based on what how it affects them. Mm-hmm. And a very easy, observable effect is money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so that was an interesting dynamic. That was a very early in the movie. And then, of course, they fought for unionization. And um, this lady, Jill Lamantia, she struggled with her independence. She had to rent a room after the GM plant closed. She was a forklift operator. She was able to get a job at Fuyao as a forklift operator. But she didn't like the working conditions because she saw better working conditions in the auto plant. She was a union organizer, and they found cause to fire her. Uh, Shawnea Rosser, she was a union organizer, and they put her on a station that was manned by two men. And they showed the station side by side, and there were two dudes pulling the glass and putting it on the shelf. And she was doing it by herself. And I think she said, I think they're doing this because I'm a union organizer. They want to say I'm not hitting my quota so they can fire me. And that's that's sad, but that's how it works. It's dirty baseball, but it's baseball nonetheless, right? You're muted. And she, and she was probably right, too. Yeah. She saw it. She saw it, yeah. So I felt the union thrust, it, it wasn't the central thrust, but it was a big part of, of the movie. And the fact that they got their ball stomped when it came to the vote, you know, they lost 66 to 33, 66 against 33 4. That was kind of sad. It was. <clears throat> so that was the union component of it. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> well the union and the labor was a good uh, microscope, m- microscope to see. Uh, the, the clashes that were going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, you have a vote. I mean, you have the numbers. Yeah. Two thirds, one third, you know, and it was very easy to see how they tried to uh, move toward one one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. 
So you're right, the, the labor uh, magnified and microscoped or whatever you want to say it, uh, the issues, the issues that they were having there. And, uh, and the vote says, okay, now we're moving forward. But that vote, what I think the young people didn't see is gave the power to where to the uh, management to where now they are going to now start doing more uh, on on uh, short term short term returns. Yes, and they did. They started firing people. And uh, this is my question, and I, I don't have an answer for this, and I know that you don't either. But when we think of foreign direct investment, we traveled to China uh, 15 years ago. Um, we think of it going from the U.S. into China. We think of building factories in China with U.S. money. Um, for So foreign direct investment, the capital flows go into China and these factories get established there. My question is, for years, American firms, whether they were wholly owned foreign enterprises or joint ventures, were putting money into China to build factories in Dongguang Progress or Fujian, where Fuyao is. And were they demanding a level of productivity that was higher than the ones that the Chinese demand when they moved to Dayton, Ohio? They may have been. Were they setting up factories with worker conditions that are worse than the ones that the Chinese set up when they went to Dayton, Ohio? For, for decades, U, U.S. money was flowing into China to build factories. And my guess is worker safety, worker hours, labor laws, they were less restrictive in China than they are in Dayton, Ohio. And so it's fascinating that the, the first Chinese company where the foreign direct, the, the investment flows the other way from China into the U.S., that immediately becomes a sticking point. And it, you can argue that's the reason the money has been going the other way for 15 years, 20 years. Uh, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. And I think you're not totally wrong. And I think the reason... China came here with with uh, uh, Chairman Cao is that uh, I mean the, the leader is because they saw that apart from the labor issues apart from the the uh, productivity issues they saw other issues like logistics or uh, having having a a, a a presence in the United States and starting to build that uh, especially in an area where the workers were, where you had the workers and they would be there because they have no jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I think they saw some advantage here beyond what America saw, what the United States saw going to China. Yeah. So I think, I think there was a quid, you know, advantages both ways, but I don't think you're wrong in what you were saying. Well, I think that for, for decades we were establishing factories in China and sort of taking jobs away from the U.S., to the net capital flows were going to China because they would work longer hours. They would work in less safe conditions. They wouldn't unionize. And now, you know, as the capital flows come back to America and some of those jobs come back, they say, well, we need to work fewer hours. We need to work in safer conditions. We need to unionize. And it's like, that's the reason the jobs left in the first place. There's, I mean, there's an argument to be made that that's true. That's true. You're right. You're correct. Uh, on the other hand, the, the money saved moving to China uh, pretty much offset the logistics of of, of getting the uh, the transportation cost of getting it uh -huh. here and also marketing it. Uh, but then when that began to increase, then maybe 
they began to see uh, more of an equity yes. of trying to have a have a plant here then. Like uh, like the lady be, that becomes, was making twenty nine ninety five an hour, now she's making twelve. Well, if she was making twenty nine ninety five an hour, it's cheaper to ship it from China. But if she's only making twelve, it's cheaper to make it in Dayton. That's right. That's um, right. and I there was a throwaway line at the beginning when Chairman Cow was talking about the construction, and he said, "Are our clients happy?" And one of the guys said, "Yes, especially Chrysler." So I mean, Chrysler's not technically an American car company because I think Daimler owns them now, but they still do manufacturing in the U.S. So I think that the clients for Fuyao Glass America would be automobile producers near that Dayton plant. And so, like you said, it's not really a labor issue anymore. It's, you know, labor costs have normalized to the point where it's, it's cheaper. You can make more profit producing glass in Dayton, Ohio, than you can producing it in Fujian, China, and shipping it all the way across the sea, having it trucked to these factories. It's actually cheaper to build a $500 million factory in Dayton. Or to build out a five hundred and and have workers there, so labor is not the only cost, not the determining factor anymore. The logistics cost more than the labor, so that was why they pulled the trigger. It's fascinating. Well, looking at the supply chain, though the logistics, and when you're next door, uh, you're reducing the lead time. When you reduce the lead time, you can reduce your inventory, and you can move from from ordering very large amounts like these these containers from China. Uh, when you're next door, your inventory can be very small and just have a continuous uh, replenishment. Mm-hmm. And you can lower lower transportation costs, lower inventory costs, lower labor costs, lower ordering costs. You can automate the actual supply chain. And so the, the cost more than offset uh, when, you, when you move it here, mm-hmm. the labor, especially if you go it's like twelve dollars an hour. You can also offer that JIT ordering to to Chrysler as a service that they have to pay for because it's saving them money. Well, that's exactly what people will do. They'll they'll have profit sharing. They'll have uh, cost sharing. They'll have all times of that. You're in a position to start negotiating other types of relationships with your supplier as a supplier. Start negotiating with the with the downstream producer Mm -hmm. but that's that wasn't part of the movie uh but that probably was a impetus for why they moved here and they're going to try to make it work yes because they saw downstream some real benefits of being here and that didn't come out in the movie because the movie wasn't it was about the factory Mm -hmm. it wasn't about the supply chain and and the and the operations uh and the analytics but it was it was about the actual factory and the labor and the cultures, uh, and then finally, automation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's get and into how automation, how automation affected the workers. Let's get into automation, because that's the final thing. And that was sort of how they closed. And that was sort of a depressing ending, don't you think? It, it, it was depressing. It, well, it was depressing how they presented it. Mm-hmm. But they did lose jobs. But then they grew, they expanded, and now I think the very end, after automation, they were able to expand with the money that they saved, and they hired more people to run the the automated equipment, and they had like what 2,200 workers, and since 2018, they've they've had a profit. Yeah, I mean, 
So this guy, Jimmy Wang, the vice president, he's the Chinese vice president, was going through with Chairman Cao, who's not on this, even though he was a main character, um, and saying, four people used to work here. We got a mechanical arm. They'll all be replaced. Two people used to work here. We got an automated system. They'll all be replaced. And that's the way a lot of jobs are going. And, of course, the film, that, that, that was just a sort of throwaway scene at the end. But it's like they built this factory for these workers. But they're in the process of automating the factory so that they need fewer workers. And so the whole point of why the factory was welcomed there, it seems like as the thrust of history goes along, those workers will be automated out of existence. And so it's like, yes, 2,000 people still work there, but they haven't fully automated the factory yet. And then the movie says in the next 10 years, by 2030, 350 million jobs in manufacturing will be lost to automation worldwide. That's a lot of jobs. And so that, I guess that's sort of like a cause for a completely different discussion than what the documentary was about. It was a fascinating note to end on because I feel like you're right. The documentary is about a culture clash between Chinese business style and American business style, between Chinese culture and American culture, and between Chinese labor and management and American labor and management. And that leads into issues of unionization. Now, the union got crushed, and so that sort of shows the waning power of unions in America. And then finally, as a sort of almost an epilogue, the movie says... Oh, by the way, in addition to this culture clash, in addition to the decline of unionization, the power of unions in America, there's also a looming specter of automation that's going to really throw a wrench in the game of manufacturing jobs in America and worldwide. The end. And it was like, there was no discussion about it. It was just sort of put up there for your consideration, and then the movie ends. Well, the, the movie was entitled the Amer a Factory, American Factory. Mm-hmm. It was about the factory. It wasn't about labor. It was about the factory. Of course, the labor was part of the factory. But then when you talk about automation, you've made the point very, very well, David, that uh, years ago, over 100, 150 years ago or 100 years ago, well, 150 years ago, our culture, our economy was based on, on agriculture. Everybody was farmers. And he says, oh, no, the Industrial Revolution, we're going to lose our jobs. We're not, we're not going to have farming anymore. And we don't. But now we have factories. Mm -hmm. But then the factories, okay, now we have computers. Oh, no, we're going to lose our jobs. And they did. But then we went into uh, uh, the information age. Now we're going to the automation age. Oh, no, they're going to lose their jobs. Yes, they are. But there's going to be other jobs. And so you're always going to be moving from one type of culture, I say uh, a business culture, to another kind of business culture, there's always going to be a need for people who uh, who work. Uh, because no matter how automated it is, you're always going to have a need for people someplace, somewhere, somehow. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the past 100, 150, 200 years, it has changed. It has changed. Uh, you don't, you don't, how many people in the United States grew up on the farm yeah there are there are those that did okay but do you need everybody with a farm well your your yeah. your father's generation sequoia's generation 80 percent of americans grew up on the farm right and your generation my generation fewer than 20 your generation it was you know 40 
now it's fewer than 20, you know? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, things change. And it's not about sort of bemoaning what you've lost. It's sort of focusing on what's ahead and trying to be ready for it. Well put, David. Well put. Because it, it ended with automation. You think, oh, no, that's terrible. We're going to lose all these jobs. I think what you said is what you need to understand what they're saying. They're saying, here are the changes that are happening moving forward. And it's going to happen. So rather, rather than bemoaning the past that we don't have it today, think about the advantages of the future embrace it and trying to make it work for you trying to make it work for you yeah because the jobs did come back the manufacturing jobs did come back the people were they wanted to make america great again but when they come back you'll realize there was a reason they left in the first place and those changes are coming back with them mm -hmm. and so can you deal with those changes the world is different the world is different than it was when the factory shuttered in 08 and it's not necessarily better for you I mean, if it's worse for you, it's worse, period. But that doesn't mean that the world necessarily is worse, period, right? That's true. And and now we're in 2021. It's going to be very different in 2024, mm -hmm. 2025. I mean, 100 years ago, or when Sequoia was alive, things changed over decades. When I was alive, uh, when I was productive, Things would change, you know, within a decade, uh, within your, it would change yearly. Uh, but now things are changing monthly. Mm -hmm. Things are, are so, so rapidly changing. I mean, all the issues of just 2020, it was almost like history now. Yeah. Uh, actually, that, that would be a really good podcast. What was the issues in 2019? <laughs> what are the issues of 2020? What are the issues of 2021? Yeah. And there's like, well, 2019, that was, oh, I, don't, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's so long ago. That was just two years ago. Yeah. What about 2020? That was just one year ago. It was like six months ago. I don't even think about that anymore. Like, you know. uh, so this week is China <clears throat> week on the podcast. I think, should we start to wrap this up? But maybe yeah. a week soon should be recent history week. And on Monday, we do 2018. On Wednesday, we do 2019. And on Friday, we do 2020 and we sort of compile. This is what happened in 2018. Remember that, you know, and we take all the biggest news stories and we go through them chronologically in January. These are the three big stories. February, these are the three big stories or whatever. And and sort of just go through headlines and sort of react like, wow, that was only three <laughs> years ago. The world's so much different then. Look at what we cared about in 2019 before the pandemic, you know, and I feel like. I went out to a bar yesterday and watched the Euro 2020 finals it was held in 2021 because of the pandemic and things are getting back to normal. And I, and you know, people are coughing and sneezing without covering their mouths. Nobody's wearing a mask. <laughs> and I think that it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, that was crazy. Well, it's time to take it for granted and just move on and pretend like it never happened and just sort of go forward until history repeats itself. Right. I feel like that's where people are at three months after sort of the pandemic started, the restrictions started to loosen. It's it's fascinating to me. But so wrapping this up, I think that we should uh, I want to say that Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert, they made an excellent documentary. And mm -hmm. of course, it was well received. It, it won the Academy Award for Best Feature Length Documentary. That's right. 
So congratulations, and they did a good job. They deserved it. It was well well done. Yes, very well done. I thought that not only was it a good story, I thought it was well told, and I also thought that it was well produced. The the way they used music, the way they used sound design, the way they put the story together, and the way they didn't use any talking head interviews, um, made it a very unique documentary that was very impactful to me. I thought that was that makes it a true documentary. Mm-hmm. Let the issues speak for themselves. Let the scenes and the people, uh, I mean, really candid conversations. Like the uh, vice president guy, not to pick on him, but yeah, to pick on him. This guy, <laughs> Dave Burroughs, he was smug and self-satisfied and he wanted to chop off the senator's head when the senator mentioned unionization. But his tune, he was whistling a different tune when Fu Yao fired his ass. Uh, so I think it's fascinating. And the thing is, there was never a talking head. Like You never got his after-the-fact reaction. You got him being himself when he was employed by Fu Yao. And he was gung-ho Fu Yao. And then he got him being himself when he was let go by Fu Yao. And he says, you can't spell Fu Yao without F-U. And it's like, that's who he is. You know, where you stand depends on who signs your paychecks. And a lot of, uh, it's not a principle. It's not a matter of principle. It's not a matter of ideals. No. And, and you know, you can say, oh, well, what about him? I said, he was just a guy. I mean, almost everyone would probably say something very similar to what happened to him. When, when things good or bad happen to you, you're going you're gonna to say those things and be bitter. It's not too much, um, he's not too much older than me. If someone came to me and said, oh, this Chinese conglomerate, billion-dollar corporation is moving to uh, Arvada, Colorado, and they want you to be a senior vice president of American operations, and you'll make a quarter million dollars a year with stock options, will you do it? So yeah. And it's like, okay, the company line is no unions. Like, I can do that. And then they fire you a year later, and you're like, screw those guys, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I'm sure that he thought it was a good opportunity. He took it. He, oh, sure. He, he held to the company line. I think, like, it's easy to sort of look at people as bad guys and good guys, but I think that everyone is sort of a prisoner of their own circumstance. Uh, not, there's, yeah, I don't like good and bad. Uh, people are people. <laughs> they're going to do what they do, and some people have good motives and bad motives, and some people are forced to do things. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes they're forced to where you say, this is my line. I'm not mm-hmm. going past that line. And then you pull out. And then uh, I think you just have to listen to people and try to understand what they mean, what they're saying, how they feel. Uh, there's too much uh, name calling and too much blame and too much uh, labeling. Oh, he's this. He's that. She's this. She's that. Nah, uh, people are people. Yeah. No one's a bad guy. No one's a good guy. Everyone is who they are. It's- and they're in that circumstances that they are right now, and that may be determining their decisions. And you can't understand their decisions because you're not in their shoes. Uh, yeah, and you should un- try to understand. Yes. And, so before you say uh, be the quick, tagline, be quick to forgive and slow to judge. Mm-hmm. Listen. Yeah. And before you say the tagline, I'll cue the music and I'll say that this has been a fantastic podcast. You've been listening to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, available Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 9 a.m. on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Stitcher. We invite you to join us every day. Feel free to subscribe. And before we leave, would you like to say one more thing? We at Sons of Sequoia says, say, 
keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye, everyone. Bye.